At this time, kids can be dismissed to Children's Church, and I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 978, Ephesians 6. We're going to begin today by reading verses 1 through 4 of Ephesians 6. And let's pray for God's help before we study his word. Bear with me. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We pray that now you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things out of your word. Uh, help me to preach as when preaching the very oracles of God. Work in every heart, Lord. Give gifts of salvation, transformation, repentance, faith. We do pray that you be glorified now through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6, reading verses 1 through 4. God's word says this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. May God give us ears to hear his word. I find this hard to believe, but I have been a pastor now for over 20 years. Never imagined I would become a pastor when I was a child, but God works in mysterious ways. And one of the things that's most surprised me about being a pastor is how much time I've spent around dying and death. Now, I, I say it surprised me, but to be honest, it shouldn't have. If anybody knows anything about what pastors do, we are not strangers to the house of mourning. We do hospital visits, we comfort the dying, we perform funerals, we know that, and yet nonetheless it has surprised me how much of this I've actually done. I was trying to figure out an exact number, but I think I've either attended, participated in, or officiated at close to 100 funerals. And something I've discovered spending all of this time around dying and death is that it's actually profoundly good for my soul. I really mean that, it is profoundly good for my soul. Every time I'm at somebody's deathbed, I'm reminded that sooner or later, that's going to be me. Every time I perform a funeral, I'm reminded that sooner or later, it's going to be my funeral. And what I've discovered is that this has not made me morbid. It's not made me depressed. Again, it's good for me because it's forced me to continually reevaluate my life, to reevaluate what's truly important. Is what I'm spending my time on worth it? Is what I'm spending my money on worth it? Uh, will I be glad at the end of my life that I devoted so much of my life to this or that? And specifically, it's made me wonder, and I think about this pretty much every time I'm at a funeral, what will people say about me at my funeral? I'd encourage you to do something like this from time to time, and I'd like all, all of us to do something like that right now. Imagine with me it's your funeral. Well, let's just say you've lived... 50 long years at, you know, from this day forward, long, rich life, you, di you died peacefully in your sleep, but it's your funeral, what would you hope people would say about you? When your coworkers, neighbors, friends, acquaintances, when they stood up to give eulogies, what would you hope they would say about you? Now, I want you to hold that thought. We're going to return to that at the end of our time together. You'll have to trust me that this is relevant. But hold that thought, because we're going to tie this all together at the end. Well, it's with this that we introduce our sermon this morning on a vision for the Christian life. 
And I'm going to contend today that God is calling every Christian family to view itself as a little church where husbands are discipling wives, wives discipling husbands, husbands and wives raising up their kids in the discipline and the nurture of the Lord, grandparents discipling grandkids. I want you to see the family as the primary context where you live out your Christianity and the primary context where you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. This sermon is actually the next installment in our annual vision series. I know that it's been all kind of broken up here with me getting sick and then going on vacation and whatnot, uh, but our tradition here for many years has been to begin each new year with a series of messages reminding ourselves of some foundational convictions, and this is another message along that line. We began talking about personal Bible intake, and specifically this year through something called scripture memory. And the thought there was that every believer ought to strive to prayerfully commune with God through his word, and scripture memory is a wonderful way to do that. Then two weeks ago, we talked about a vision for the Christian life. And there I argued that a Christian is somebody who takes up his cross and follows Jesus in discipleship, and more than that, labors to help others become disciples. That's the essence of what a Christian is. And then today, we're going to talk about the family. Uh, Eventually, Lord willing, in Three weeks, we're going to talk about the way that this idea fleshes itself out in the local church. Uh, But hopefully you can see a series of concentric circles here. You, individually relating to God, your family, the church, and then from there, the entire world. And to consider this topic today, a vision for the Christian family, we're going to consider three questions together. Three questions which will hopefully equip you and inspire you to, again, see the family as the primary context where you live out your relationship with the Lord. Question number one, what is family discipleship? Probably a new term, maybe a term that you've never heard before, um, but let me explain what this is, and then we're going to ask, does the Bible actually teach this thing? What is family discipleship? Well, here's a definition I came up with many years ago, and I'm going to read it a couple of times, and then we're going to break it down. But this is what I mean when I speak of family discipleship. Family discipleship refers to the responsibility of every Christian family to pursue growth and godliness together as a family. Family discipleship is normally overseen by the father and must be tailored to the unique needs of each family member, depending on their spiritual state, meaning unconverted or converted, and level of maturity. Family discipleship takes place in both formal and informal contexts and should work in conjunction with local church involvement. I realize that's a mouthful, but I hope hope that as we progress this morning, you'll get this vision, and what's more, you'll desire to, to make your family this kind of family, that you'll see the goodness and the beauty of this. Well, let's break this down. We say family discipleship refers to the responsibility of every Christian family to pursue growth and godliness together as a family. What I mean here is that God is not merely concerned with you and your individual relationship with the Lord. Uh, We Americans are so individualistic. We just think me and my Bible, me and my me and prayer, and that's good enough. Of course we need the Bible. Of course we need prayer. But we've got to take a broader vision here and, and think in terms of how do I relate to my family members? How do I relate to my church family? You see, God is looking for your family to grow as a family, not you just to grow as an individual. He he wants to see you joining arm in arm with your spouse, with your kids, with your grandparents, with your siblings, and together progressing toward the Lord. You might illustrate what I'm talking about here this way. You know what a bunch of grape vines on a trellis looks like? You know, I'm not a grape farmer or anything close to it, but I, but I get, it, get this idea. A, a grapevine growing on a trellis, it, it might have 10, 12 different vines shooting up. Now, those different vines are individual plants, but what happens is over time, they get all intertwined, interrelated, that they become kind of like one big plant thingy. You know what I'm talking about? 
Realize something similar takes place in your family. Of course your family is made up of individuals. You as an individual, you relate to God. Individually, you're, you're going to stand accountable before God. But your family is so intertwined and interconnected that you can't separate one another. You know, how you relate to God has impact on how you relate to your spouse. And if you're not on good terms with your spouse, it's going to be difficult to be on good terms with your Lord. You see what I'm saying? And the same thing goes for your children, your parents. There's an interconnectedness there that you can't separate from the family. Well, second, we say that family discipleship is normally overseen by the Father. Uh, this is something that we believe here at Trinity, that the Father is the spiritual head of the household. That does not mean he is a dictator, does not mean he's you know, this, this slave master just going around whipping everybody and telling me, kids, bring me my chips. Uh, but no, he is the captain of the ship called his family. Everything rise and, rises and falls with his leadership. Practically, what this means is that every father ought to view himself as the pastor of his family. And then those fathers that do an especially good job pastoring their families should be entrusted with pastoring local churches, like we see in 1 Timothy 3. Now, having said all of that, that raises a very important question. What do we do if a father won't do this? You know, let's say he's absent or unsaved or just stubbornly unwilling. And again, we've got to deal with this question more and more. I actually looked this up, but according to a recent census, only 46% of children growing up in America are now growing up in a home with two married heterosexual parents. And let that sink in, especially for those of us who take the Bible seriously, what the Bible says about family. This is our mission field. So we've got to figure out a way in which we're going to minister the Bible in a context like this, where only 46% of children are growing up in homes with two married heterosexual parents. What does that mean, then, for this thing called family discipleship? Well, if a father has, say, abandoned the family, or he's dead, or he's in prison, or he just totally refuses to do anything here, obviously it falls to the mother to take the lead. She'll need to conceive of ways to pray with her children, pray for her children, teach the Bible to her children, share the gospel with her children. Maybe she can involve godly grandparents or uh, maybe friends in the church, maybe deacons, elders, something like that. But even if the father is totally out of the picture or unbelieving, like we see with Timothy in the New Testament, discipleship still needs to be taking place in the family. We then say that family discipleship must be tailored to the unique needs of each family member depending on their spiritual state and level of maturity. Uh, now, frankly, that's just common sense. You don't treat a 15-year-old like he's 5. You don't treat a 2-year-old like he's 18, and vice versa. You don't expect things from unconverted family members that you can only expect from Christians. You use common sense, and you tailor the discipleship to where the person is at intellectually and spiritually. And then lastly, we say that family discipleship takes place in both formal and informal contexts, and should work in conjunction with local church involvement. Now I'm going to say more about both parts of that in a minute, but basically what we're saying is that this kind of teaching, this kind of communicating the faith, it takes place both in formal contexts, where you might sit down over a cup of coffee and read the Bible together, and as you're, say, fixing the car and just chit-chatting about life. Uh, you know, both as you might attend a Christian conference together, and, uh, you know, some current event takes place, and over the dinner table you discuss how do we evaluate this from a Christian perspective. Now, I recognize that what we're talking about here this morning is almost completely extinct in much of Christendom, and that is to our shame. Uh, you know, I, it's possible that you grew up in a family like this, where the extent of family discipleship was going to church on Sunday and saying grace before meals. Uh, that's obviously better than nothing, but I want you to get this morning that God is calling us to so much more, 
And he's offering so much more to you. There's so much more potential in your family for growth and joy and fruitfulness if we'll take this matter of family discipleship seriously. Well, that's our first question. What is family discipleship? Let's talk about a second question. What does the Bible say about family discipleship? What does the Bible say about family discipleship? And here what we're doing, we're going to evaluate that definition I just gave you according to Scripture. Does the Bible actually teach this, or is this just some sort of nice idea that I came up with? Well, I believe the Bible does teach this, and to prove this to you, we're going to quickly move throughout the entire storyline of Scripture. This is something I find personally helpful when trying to discern whether or not, uh, does this matter? Is it still binding on me? Let's see what the entirety of Scripture says about it. So I'm going to move quickly from Genesis all the way to the New Testament. You don't need to look up all these passages. You might just want to jot them down. Some of them will be on the wall behind me. But again, the question is, is this something that God expects of families today? Let's begin in Genesis. In the beginning, God makes Adam and whom? Eve. Eve, that's right. And God gives to Adam and Eve a command. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm sure you've all heard this before. But here's something interesting to consider. When did God give Adam the command? Was it before he created Eve or after? It was actually before, not after. Eve doesn't even exist. God gives this command to Adam, but Eve's responsible to obey it. What that means is that Adam had to communicate the word of God to his wife. And in reality, that's the very beginning of family worship, family discipleship. Communicating the word of God to others begins with Adam in the garden. Well, obviously, Adam and Eve, they sinned. They ate from the forbidden fruit. They were cast out of the garden. They had kids, Cain and Abel. And as soon as we see Cain and Abel, what are they doing? What are Cain and Abel doing? They're offering sacrifices to the Lord. Now, where do you suppose they learned to do that? Who do you think told them to do that? It wasn't priests or Levites or Sunday school teachers or youth pastors, none of them obviously existed, it must have been Adam and Eve communicating to their children the obligation to worship God. Again, that's family discipleship. Let's think about Noah here. In Noah's day, the entire world was corrupt except for Noah and whom? His family. Now, do you think that's just a weird coincidence that it was Noah and his kids who were not godless? No, I think obviously Noah had a personal relationship with the Lord, but he communicated that to his wife and to his children so that when the flood came and wiped out humanity, Noah and his family were saved. Let's move on to Job. Remember Job, the most righteous man on the planet? What's one of the first things we see Job doing in the beginning of the book of Job? Look this up, Job 1.5, he's offering sacrifices on behalf of his children. He's deeply concerned with the spiritual welfare of his kids, and in a way that's nothing more than family discipleship. Let's keep going. Let's consider Abraham. And I want you to look at this verse up here from Genesis 18, 19, talking about Abraham. And look at the specific purpose for which God chose Abraham. God says, for I have chosen him, talking about Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, here's the reason why I, the Lord, have made Abraham my special friend, why I have entered into covenant with him, it's so that he'll communicate the knowledge of God to his children and to his household. And it's interesting that only Abraham is mentioned and not Sarah. Now, is Sarah crucial to the plan of God? Of course. She's going to give birth to Isaac, and that's going to be the way that the plan of God moves forward. And yet she's not mentioned here. Why might that be? We'll come back to that later. Moving on, here's a passage from Deuteronomy 6. I'm sure you're familiar with it. We've read it from this pulpit many times. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, in this passage, the families of Israel are commanded to pass on the truth of God to the next generation. God says, you'll teach them diligently to your children. But you'll notice here how primarily informal contexts are envisioned. It's interesting. You do this when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. So as you and your kids are milking the cow or fixing the lawnmower, or as you're just sitting on the edge of your teenager's bed and processing what's going on through the day, or as you're sitting around the dinner table and all of a sudden something comes up. and you, Those are ideal opportunities to fill in your kid's worldview with biblical truth. Moving on, consider Joshua 4. We read this in our scripture reading. But the people of Israel, they cross the Jordan River, and what are they to do? They're to set up this pile of 12 stones. And what were those 12 stones supposed to do? Let me read it to you again, Joshua 4.21. He said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. Those stones were more than just stones. They were a teaching opportunity so that fathers could talk to their kids about the great works of God. Uh, interestingly, as I was sitting here during the scripture reading, the thought occurred to me that something similar takes place when we eat the Lord's Supper. We've got these objects in front of us, and Obviously, they're not stones, but kids can ask their parents, what's this bread all about? What's this grape juice all about? And you have an opportunity to communicate to them, again, the great things of God. One more time, I uh, draw your attention to the fact that it's primarily fathers. Now, again, when, when we make this point, are we in any way saying that mothers are inconsequential or insignificant? Of course not. But we do believe that there are different roles in the plan of God. And again, the father is to be the spiritual captain of the family. Let's keep moving. Psalm 78.5. This was part of our call to worship today. The Lord established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel that he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. If you look at that passage, which I encourage you to do, there are actually several generations in view. Fathers teaching their children, but then the children unborn teaching their children so that they might set their hope in God. God envisions this, the, the, the knowledge of God, true faith being passed down from one generation to the next, primarily through families. A couple more passages. We're almost done. Listen to Malachi 2.14. This will be on the wall behind me. And this gives us the answer to a great question. Why does God give parents kids? Ever wonder about that? You know, maybe with, don't read the passage yet, but why do, why do you think God gives families children? You know, is it so you can dress them all up nice and put their pictures on Facebook? Uh, you know, is it so that we can have, you know, servants to bring us our chips when we're sitting in our easy boy? You know, why does God give us children? Well, here's God's answer. Did not God, he's talking about the man and his wife, the husband and wife, did not God make them one, which by the way is a huge principle, a man and wife are one spiritually in marriage. Um, but did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was God seeking? What's God looking for from your marriage? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. This is the reason why we have kids. You know, again, not necessarily to help us on the farm, though that's certainly a good thing. I'm not mocking that. Um, but so that we can communicate the faith to the next generation and so that our kids will become fully devoted followers of Jesus. Moving on to the New Testament, nothing changes at all. 
The family is still the first and the primary place where children are to be discipled in the ways of God. When Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph, they took him to the temple to be circumcised. Remember that? And then when he's 12, they're in the temple again, and that's when Jesus is debating with the the scribes about the deep things of the law. Uh, And he's taken there both times by his parents. You can think of Timothy in this regard. We know that Timothy did not have a believing father. His father was an unbelieving Greek. But we do know that his mother and his grandmother were Christians. They were faithful, faithful believers. And this is what is said of Timothy. 2 Timothy 3.15, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now think about this. If Timothy's dad's not a believer, where did he learn the sacred scriptures? It must have been from his godly mother and grandmother. Imagine them holding him on their knees, communicating the word of God to them. And that's how Timothy became who he was. And Timothy, in a way, is an encouragement to those families where the father is delinquent or absent, uh, that it's not as if things are destined for failure if the dad just won't do his part. In the event you're still not convinced, let me give you one final passage. Ephesians 6.4. This was what we read for our opening time. Ephesians 6.4. God says what? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. For the sake of time, I won't talk about that, but that is a great temptation. And the older I get, the more I realize it is to be kind of a harsh, domineering father that, you know, and that's sin. And I and pray for me there. Uh, but fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but what? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, I'm sure you know that passage. You've heard that passage. It's on coffee mugs and quilts and whatnot, but notice what it does not say. It does not say parents, but what? What does it say? Now, why might it say, and by the way, time out. There are translations out there that change that to parents. If you've got such a translation, I'd encourage you to get a different translation because that's not accurate. If you look it up, it actually does say fathers, like the the, the dude, uh, not parents. But again, the reason why this is fathers is part of that entire biblical teaching that the father is the spiritual captain of the family. Mothers are essential. They are vital. We praise God for them. Uh, Men could not do what they do at all without the mothers um, in God's program. And yet, at the end of the day, fathers have a unique role in the plan of God to be the spiritual leaders, both in the home and in the church. All fathers are, to use again the words of Genesis 18, to command their children and their household after them to keep the way of the Lord. Now, pause here just for a second and let's summarize what we've seen. I realize we've gone over an awful lot of scripture, but see if you find any common threads here. We've looked at passages from the Old Testament and the New Testament, passages that apply to individuals, passages that apply to the nation of Israel, passages that apply to the church. We've looked at passages describing Abraham, Joshua, passages describing Jesus and Timothy. What's the common denominator? The common denominator running through all these passages is a call to family discipleship. I believe God always has expected and continues to expect today every Christian family to pursue growth and godliness together as a family. This is a responsibility normally overseen by the Father and needs to be tailored to the unique needs of each family member. This is a responsibility that takes place in both formal and informal contexts and should work in conjunction with local church involvement. Do you believe, based on what we've seen, that the Bible teaches that? If you want to go into more detail on this topic, the book I'd encourage you to check out is called God, Marriage, and Family, a scholarly book that goes into meticulous detail on this subject. But let me read to you the conclusion that Andres Kostenberger draws after looking at a whole bunch of scripture. Andres Kostenberger says, The Pentateuch, 
The Old Testament historical books and the book of Psalms are pervaded by the consciousness that parents, and especially fathers, must pass on their religious heritage to their children. God's express will for his people Israel is still his will for God's people in the church today. Christian parents have the mandate and serious obligation to instill their, to instill their religious heritage in their children. This heritage centers on the personal experience of God's deliverance from sin and his revelation in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for us on the cross. Christian parents ought to take every opportunity to speak about these all-important matters with their children and to express and impart to their children personal gratitude for what God has done to their children. While there may be Christian Sunday school teachers and other significant people in a child's life, parents must never go back on their God-given responsibility to be the primary source of religious instruction for their children. Now, quickly, that quote might make you wonder, what's the relationship of all of this to the local church? You know, if I'm doing family discipleship at home, does that mean I can just skip out on church? Or, reverse that, if I'm involved in a good local church, does that mean I can neglect family discipleship? Well, as I read the Bible, the family and the church are two different entities that occupy two different spheres. Okay, big language, but important concepts. Two different entities that occupy two different spheres. And though they are different, they're both very much important and very much essential in God's plan. For example, Jesus charged the church to preach the gospel to all nations. Uh, my family, we, we can't do that. That's, just, that's beyond our capacity to preach the gospel to all nations. The church is to observe the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We have no examples anywhere in Scripture of either of those being observed in families. The church is to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth in a godless culture, while the family is to be fruitful and multiply. The church is composed of only born-again persons, while my family is composed of all my biological relatives, whether or not they know the Lord or not. You see the differences? And as I look at the family and the church, they're not two rivals, but they're two different entities playing two different roles. Uh, you know, it's kind of like this. Which is more important, the right wing of the airplane or the left wing of the airplane? Or which is more important, uh, water or food? Obviously, you need both. And so also, we need both families and local churches. And I really think that when the family functions as the family should function, and when the church functions as the church should function, they'll actually build one another up and sort of pour gasoline on one another in a good way. I mean, you could imagine it this way. Imagine if your family, throughout the week, were discussing the upcoming sermon text that I'm going to preach on. Or imagine if your family, every Sunday afternoon, just went around and said, what most stuck, stuck out to you from the sermon? Or what if you were praying together as a family, for the missionaries that our church supports. Can you see that how the way that you did discipleship in the family would actually strengthen our church and vice versa? One last thing I want to emphasize. This thing that we call family discipleship is not merely for families with young children. I know I've mentioned children and you know, raising up children many times, and, and that's obviously essential, but this is not merely for families with young children. Even if there are no kids in your home, there's still a responsibility for you to be making disciples within the context of the family. Why do I say that? Well, like I argued two weeks ago, part of being a disciple is striving to make disciples of others, doing what you can to point others to Jesus and help ground them in the faith. And within the context of the family, that includes husbands discipling wives, wives discipling husbands. More than that, grandparents doing what they can to encourage their grandkids in the Lord. I mean, if you're a grandparent, you can have, you know, Christian books, Christian Bibles around, you know, talk to the kids about what they're learning in Sunday school, or maybe if they don't go to Sunday school, you know, maybe just mention things about the Lord, about Jesus. Uh, let, let's say I'm a single guy 
Well, do you have siblings? Do you have nieces and nephews? What can you do to encourage your parents and point them to the Lord? I'd encourage, if you're a college student, strive to do this sort of thing in your dorm or with your roommates. Uh, You know, that's in a way your household right now, so how can I encourage them in the Lord? Might we read the Bible together and pray at night? That sort of thing. I know I've mentioned raising children a lot, but don't assume that what we're talking about here only applies to families with young kids. One final thought on this point. You might be wondering, why is this whole family discipleship thing necessary? I mean, it sounds like it's going to take a lot of work. might make things kind of awkward. It might mean i got to turn the TV off more than I'd like. So why do we even take this thing seriously? Why don't we just let people blossom like flowers? Well, here's the reason why. According to the Bible, the truth that saves and the truth that transforms is not found in here. It needs to be brought to us and communicated to us. You get that? You get this point, by the way, and forget everything else. Well, don't really forget everything I've said, but if, if you get this point, this is a, one of those truths that will totally transform your worldview. The truth that saves, the truth that transforms is not found in here. In here are what? Dead men's bones and filth and uncleanness. And, all, and, and if you're honest with yourself, you know that. You, you think some nasty stuff that you would not share with anybody. Am I right? No, the truth that saves, the truth that transforms must be imparted to me, brought to me, communicated to me. You think about it, the world today says the exact opposite of what I'm telling you right now. The world thinks the big problems are out there, in society, in culture, in politics, and the solutions are in here. I just got to quiet myself and listen to my heart. If I follow my heart, everything will be all good. I'll blossom like a flower. No, the Bible is going to tell you the exact opposite. Your heart is the big problem. I mean, society, think about it, society is made up of a bunch of individuals. And the reason why society is what it is is because all those individuals have corrupt hearts. The solution, therefore, must not be by me listening to my heart, but by truth coming into me, by believing, by embracing this truth, and particularly a message called the gospel. What's the gospel, you ask? The gospel, first, is a message. It's not a way of life, not keeping the Ten Commandments, uh, not living a certain way, not giving money to the poor. The gospel is a message about what God has done to save sinners. God made you in his image to know him, to have a relationship with him. That's why you're here. That's part of your fundamental identity, to have a relationship with Almighty God. And yet the gospel tells us that we have sinned. We've rebelled against our creator, defied God, basically tried to make ourselves our own gods without any regard to how Almighty made it to be lived. Now, because we're rebellious and because God is holy, he will punish us for our sins, somewhat in this life, but far worse in the life to come. And yet this is when, in his amazing mercy, God incarnated himself. He took on flesh and blood in the person of Jesus. Jesus grew up and lived a perfect, sinless life, the life we should have lived. But then Jesus died on the cross, and when he died on the cross, he took the wrath of God in the place of sinners. He died as a substitute, bearing in his body, in his soul, the wrath of God we deserve for our sins. Three days later, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead to demonstrate that what I'm telling you today is true. And now in response, Jesus is calling you. He's inviting you. He's commanding you. Turn from sin, believe on me, be made right with God. It's really that simple. Stop running from God. Stop living your own way. Stop making yourself your own God. Turn, embrace Jesus, rely on his death and resurrection. Be forgiven, be made right with your creator, and enter back into that relationship with Almighty God that you were made for in the beginning. 
That's the gospel, and that's the gospel that's outside of ourselves that must be communicated to us and embraced if we're to be saved. So trust Jesus now. If you've never put your hope in the Lord Jesus, do it right now. Turn from sin, embrace the Lord Jesus, rely on his death and resurrection, and again, enter back into that relationship with your creator that you were made for. Trust Jesus today. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on anything that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, talk to me after the service. I'll be at the front door to greet people on the way out. But trust Jesus today, and today be made right with God. Well, let's talk about a last question. What are some strategies for family discipleship? We've defined what this family discipleship is. I've tried to prove to you that this is something that the scriptures teach that God expects from all Christian families. Now let's lastly talk about how practically might we do this. What are some strategies here? For the sake of time, I'm only going to give you a brief, brief introduction to this whole topic. I've actually preached on this topic many times over the years. If you'd like further teaching on this subject, go to our sermon audio page and just look for the terms family or family discipleship. I've basically preached on this topic every year for the last decade or so. Over the years, we've talked about things like catechizing our kids, about teaching the Bible, studying the Bible with our kids, about helping kids develop a Christian worldview, about husbands and wives loving one another and pointing one another to the Lord. We've talked about a wide, wide variety of topics. So again, search family or family discipleship, any of the past sermons. It'll give you a lot to think about. But today, we're just going to talk briefly about this thing called family worship. Something I love, really have come to believe in strongly, family worship. Now, what is that? Now, by family worship, I mean families gathering regularly in their homes to read the Bible, praise God together, and pray together. Quite simple, but if you do it consistently over the years, it will change your life. Uh, think of this as way more than just saying grace. Again, a lot of people think saying grace is the extent of it. Grace, obviously, is good. You know, Lord, thank you for this food, etc. Uh, this is... Think of it more as like a five to ten minute little church service with your family. So, for example, maybe right after dinner, dad, you say, does anybody have prayer requests? And kids start saying stuff, you know, Susie broke her leg at school, uh, the, the neighbor's dog died. Uh, you know, they, they just give you prayer requests. And I encourage you, even if you think they're insignificant, the kids don't think they're insignificant, so incorporate them into your prayers. You pray together. Then get the Bible out and maybe you read a paragraph or two. You know, maybe I might suggest something like the Gospel of John, Book of Genesis. And not only do you read it, but you ask, all right, what stuck out to you? More specifically, what do you think the Lord is saying to us through this passage? You, know, you, don't, you don't want to just be content with details about the Philistines or something like that. You, you want to get what is the Lord communicating to us today through this passage. That'll take a while for your kids to get, uh, but as they age, they'll, they'll start getting what's the message of this passage. Then I encourage you to pray again in light of that. Lord, give us grace to trust and obey what we heard from you in this passage. After that, you can add and subtract things you know, according to your discernment. You, know, you might sing some Christian songs or hymns together. Uh, you might discuss a catechism question together. Uh, you might talk about what favorite Bible verse you all memorized recently. You might evaluate a current event from a biblical perspective, which is, again, very, very helpful to do. Be creative. Use your discernment here. Obviously, if your kids are real young, it, be careful of making this overly long and, and tedious. You don't want to do that. But then you're done. It's obviously simple, brief. But again, imagine you did that five, six times a week for 18 to 20 years. Can you see how that would powerfully impress upon your kids those things which are of first importance? Now, again, this family worship, what I'm describing here, 
unfortunately, is almost extinct in Christendom today. But do realize, if you ever get reading church history, this is something that characterized the church for hundreds of years. If you got into a time machine and went back to, say, 16th century Germany, or 17th century Philadelphia, or 19th century London, Christian families, by and large, practiced family worship to the degree that local churches often disciplined fathers who wouldn't do it. Now, I'm not advocating that we should start doing that, but that's designed to show you how common this was. The family that didn't do family worship was looked at as like, what's wrong with you guys? Just a thought. Now, the benefits of family worship are many, and let me just quickly mention a few of these. First, family worship communicates on a powerful level what you and your family consider truly important. It communicates on almost like a subliminal level what is truly important. I mean, your kids will inevitably pick up what is important through how you live, even more so than what you profess. You know, if you play golf every single Sunday morning without fail, including skipping church, you're communicating to your kids what's really important, aren't you? You know, if every single night around the dinner table you complain about the president, you're communicating to your kids what's really important, aren't you? So also, if you prioritize family worship, just say five minutes a day, over time your kids will pick up God, the Bible, Jesus, really important. To think about this another way, I believe that in one sense, every family will do family worship of a kind, but they won't just necessarily worship the Lord. See what I'm getting at? Every family will do family worship of a kind, they just won't necessarily worship the Lord. Uh, again, their family worship might be, we always go to golf on whatever, or we, we do not miss this under any circumstances, or criticizing this guy is always, again, you'll worship something. But the question that you need to deal with is, is it Almighty God or something else? Let me give you another benefit of family worship. Family worship draws the family together. Family worship draws the family together. And think about our age when everybody's got a cell phone, everybody's staring at a screen all day long, you know, oftentimes the TV's going during dinner. What is more important than everybody saying, all right, let's put the devices down, turn the TV off, let's look one another in the eyes and talk about the most important issues in life? By God's grace, I've seen this take place in my family. We've done family worship ever since my kids were born. And over the years, what I've discovered is that it really does help your family a lot. I mean, just imagine a, a short family meeting every day. And it's not just a family meeting, but it's a time where you discuss the Bible, pray together. I mean, it, it, it's really valuable. Uh, now, are there times when it's like late and kind of pedantic and kids are like, oh, we just want to go to sleep? Uh, yes, there are nights like that. Uh, but again, think in terms of decades here. You know, over time, it will bless your family. And this is going to sound like an audacious statement. I think I'd probably do family worship even if I were an atheist. And even if there weren't any God, which of course there is, but even if there weren't, just seeing the way that it brings the family together is so helpful. To prioritize family worship, it'll bind your family together. Here's one final benefit of family worship. It will enhance corporate worship here on Sundays. Family worship will enhance corporate worship on Sundays. There's a high likelihood that if you find worship on Sundays boring, it's probably because you're not putting in enough preparation throughout the week. Not always. I mean, there are other factors to contribute, but probably it's because you're not practicing. In a way, it's sort of like a football team practicing throughout the week for the big game. If that takes place, will they play better with greater excitement and greater engagement if they've been practicing? Or, you know, compare that, if they've just been sitting around watching TV all week, they're not going to do too well when game day comes. Along these lines, let me give you some specific suggestions pertaining to engaging with, in corporate worship here. In your family worship, you might read the sermon text 
Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you know, the week before I preach. These are included in the e-newsletter pretty much every week. Uh, so maybe nail that down and then read it together and discuss it in family worship. I'd encourage you to make prayer for God to work here on Sundays a part of your family worship prayers. And pray that God would work through everything from Sunday school to the songs to the fellowship. Again, God, you know, God seems to particularly bless sermons, but that's not the only thing he uses. He often uses just informal fellowship in the hallway to totally transform people's lives. So pray for that as well. You might consider incorporating some of the songs we commonly sing here into your family worship. Uh, you know, you can talk to Stu, get kind of a repertoire of what songs we commonly sing, but maybe incorporate some of those into family worship. And obviously pray diligently that God would save any who come, and every Sunday there are several. Maybe keep that in mind. You know, never assume that every last, person in this, every last person in this room right now is not born again. There, there are some in this room right now that don't know the Lord. So pray that God would work and draw everybody to himself who's hearing the gospel. I really believe family worship will enhance corporate worship here on Sundays. So if you want to enjoy Sundays more, prioritize family worship. Now there's much more that could be said about family worship. If you'd like to read or think more about this, the book I'd recommend is Donald Whitney's Family Worship. I read this a long time ago. It changed my life. We've got a paper copy in the library and on audio. So if you're not much of a reader, check out the audio version. But I think you'll find it helpful. But to conclude this point, what I hope you've not missed is the way in which God still expects the today. And God can profoundly use this for good in your family. However you figure it out, and a lot of details are up to just Christian freedom and discernment, but however you figure it out, it is no doubt the responsibility of every Christian family, and especially fathers, to raise up their kids, raise up their household in the discipline and the nurture of the Lord. And very seriously, I believe that though you might neglect this now, one day in this life or in the life to come, you will regret neglecting this. So let me just quickly ask you a couple questions, parents and especially fathers. How are you doing bringing up your family in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord? What's your plan here for teaching your children, for teaching your spouse the things of God? Very seriously, and I, I wish I could impress this more powerfully on you, have you taken the time to share the gospel with your family members? It bewilders me to no end that there are parents that don't share the gospel with their kids. And I will try to rein in my indignation here. What is wrong with you that you wouldn't share the most important truth in the universe with your kids? You'll, you'll teach them how to change your oil and how to like manage a checkbook, or you know, I know we don't do checkbooks anymore, but you know how to handle your finances, but not about the Lord. Are the members of your household more knowledgeable of God's word, more like Jesus because of your influence? Now, of course, such questions can make us feel guilty, can make us feel condemned. And my goal is not to browbeat people into shame. I fall short here like all of us do. And this is why we thank God that Jesus died for all of our sins and that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. And yet, nonetheless, if we are persuaded that this is something that we should be doing, I call upon you to commit to this today. Commit to this today. Maybe this afternoon, get alone in prayer. And pray, Lord, please forgive me. I haven't been taking this seriously at all. I've totally dropped the ball here. But Lord, help me to repent. Help me to grow. Help me to change. Help me to be thoughtful in discipling my kids, my spouse, my coworkers, whoever. Maybe talk to somebody who thinks doing a decent job here for ideas and advice, accountability. 
But I say this again, God calls you and will hold you accountable for how you disciple the members of your family. Now to conclude our time this morning, I bring you back to that question I asked at the beginning of our time. I asked you to imagine it's your funeral. You know, maybe it's 50, 75 years from now, you've had a long, healthy life, you died peacefully in your sleep. What do you think those at your funeral would say about you? Or what would you hope they would say about you? I have no idea how you might answer that question, but let me share just some of what I hope will be said at my funeral. I hope that at least some of my kids will stand up and say, you know, my dad, he was far from perfect. He had his idiosyncrasies. He lost his temper way too much. Was too strict on some things, too lenient on others. Kind of fearful of man at times. He uh, read a lot of books, took a lot of naps. But one thing I can say about my dad is that he really tried hard to communicate to us the gospel. By his word, by his example, he taught us to value God, value Jesus, value the Bible, value the local church. And despite his shortcomings, that's something I can't forget about my dad. I hope and pray that something like that will be said at my funeral. But here's the thing. If we hope to have something like that said of us at our funerals, what steps do we need to take today? What steps do we need to commit to this week? What, what steps do we need to commit to this morning that our families might be characterized by family discipleship? Families that bring glory to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God and for the all sufficient resources found in it. Lord, you have given us in your word everything that we need for life and godliness. And Lord, yes, this calling is overwhelming. It's it's, it's huge to contemplate pointing people to Almighty God and uh, dealing with the most important issues in life. Uh, but Lord, you have promised to give us the grace that we need to abound in every good work. So please help us. Lord, help us to search the scriptures. Help us to beg you for help in prayer. Help us, Lord, to rely on the strength and the accountability of our brothers and sisters in Christ here. But Lord, please work and make every Christian family in this congregation a family of family discipleship. And we do pray that the next generation and the children yet unborn would put their hope in God. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.